the first thing on my mind this week was just the idea that it's been six weeks now since Harvey. Can y'all believe that? Six weeks since Harvey, since the storm. And we're still very much in the thick of it. Many of you are not even home yet. And some of you are, are hosting people that aren't home yet. And half of us have this thing called Harvey cough that won't let us sleep at night because all the mold that's in the air is just this deep, grovelly chest cough that I've got. And if I can't finish the sermon, it's probably why today because it gets kind of ugly. And, and some of you all are grappling with some of the similar kinds of um, consequences of, of that storm. And, and, you know, it's almost like we're Pavlov's dog. Whenever it starts raining, we run to the grocery store. You know what I mean? Like any, any sign of a storm and we go stock up on water and wine just in case it's the next one. You know what I mean? Like we're just a little bit PTSD about this thing. And it makes sense. It's six weeks since this happened. And, and, you know, it's not like the other headlines going on in the world have made it all better. Like it's just uh, been a rough six weeks with more hurricanes and shootings and, and, you know, a fire in California and, uh, you know, world leaders with uh, huge egos and, and their little hands on the nuclear weapon buttons. You know what I mean? Like, just like, uh, I'm a little afraid every morning to check the news because anything could happen. And if it's an over-under bet, I'll take the under on this. You know, like, it's a little pessimistic. Of right now, and, and when we think about what, what the world is like, and, and so I've, I've had that on my mind. I've also been thinking very much as I've dug deeper into Hebrews about what it even means that in the midst of a world like this, we say we're saved by Jesus. What do those words even mean? Jesus saves, or Jesus saved me. We sing about it all the time. We pray about it, talk about it. Maybe you tell your friends about it. Maybe your non-religious friends roll their eyes about it. Like, what does it mean that Jesus saved you? Saved you from what? What are we saved from? Clearly not Harvey, because Harvey took out Christian homes and equally as non-Christian homes. So it wasn't like a Passover when you had the blood of the lamb on your doorstep or a cross on the wall and the water just left you high and dry, you know, just passed by your house. Like, that's not how it worked. That's not what it was. And so what, did, what does Jesus save you from? if not pain and loss and suffering like that uh, in the aftermath of Harvey. If, you, if you're a Christian already and somebody asks you this week, somebody at work or at, at home or at school, uh, what did Jesus save you from? What would your answer be? What would your answer be? Now, I, I hope you don't feel compelled to get all religious on your poor non-religious friend who asks you that question. Because if you get all religious, and if you say, well, Jesus came to save me from sin and hell and death, then they're gonna check out, man. You're gonna lose their attention, you're gonna lose their respect because people are so sick of hearing Christians talk in those pithy kinds of terms that don't really make sense in the real world. You know, save me from sin and hell and death. That might have some meaning under the surface, but you're not gonna have the time in that moment to, you know, uh, to lay out the five points of what all that means. Like you're, you're you need a better answer, and people are sick of hearing Christians talk about salvation in those terms. They're sick of Christians in general right now. I don't know if you've noticed that the feelings in secular culture are amped up uh, against Christianity, against organized religion in general, right? But in the wake of the Las Vegas thing and the, the outpouring of rage toward anyone who said thoughts and prayers 
you know, that kind of thing. The, the anti-thoughts and prayers movement, while I understand where it comes from, we need to do more than just that. But basically, this time, it became don't think or pray, just act. You know, that kind of thing. It's, it, it, it's in, indicative of more, I think, to- toxic hatred that's borderline irrational. People are criticizing Christians or Christianity um, and when they don't really understand what Christianity um, uh, believes or is about. So this hatred is irrational. We don't often help our own cause. We mess up and we're human too. But, man, that hatred is real. But what I want you to know is that it's not new. Christians have always been at odds with culture. That's the way it should be. We should present a different set of values than the ones popular culture are living by. If we are blending in perfectly, that's when we're at our worst. That's when the church historically has always done its worst, is when the church just blends in with the politics of the age or the nationalism of the age or the culture of the age. Like, we should present a better alternative than the one that secular culture um, presents. And when we do that, we're at our best, like the early church. The early church was hated by culture. The first century of the church's life and the decades after the, the, the birth of the church, hated by culture. The Emperor Nero, it just took him a few decades to blame these poor Christians for setting Rome on fire. And so they arrested Christians and fed them to lions and for sport in the Colosseum and beat them in the streets and flogged them in front of their children, like all these horrible things because Nero taught the secular people to hate uh, Christians. And in the decades that followed, Roman philosophers, Roman polemicists all spoke out against Christianity, accusing Christians of things like atheism. Christians were called atheists because Christians refused to bow to the Roman gods. And so the first accusation leveled against Christianity by secular Roman culture was atheism. And then they said, no, they're not just atheists. They're also incestuous. Christians practice incest because, look, the New Testament says brothers and sisters should greet each other with a holy kiss. It says it right here in the book. So they're, 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 you know, incestuous as well. And then maybe the most um, common critique leveled against the early Christians was one of cannibalism. Christians were called cannibals. Fanatic cannibals because of how we, or the first Christians celebrated communion. And what it says in our book and what they said to each other, this is the body of Christ. Eat it. You know that kind of thing? That's how the world saw it. Which I got to say, if you don't know the backstory, it's pretty weird. Like, we just got to own that. If you just walk into a room and somebody gives you something mildly fleshy and says, this is his body, you should eat it. You know, that's strange. Like, that's weird. And, but again, it's people that don't know what it means criticizing it as if they do know what it means, which is so common in the world today when it comes to um, the church and, and Christianity. And, and sometimes Christians don't even know what things really mean. So we can't really defend ourselves in the face of those things. And, and so uh, we seem very creepy and very strange to the culture. And not to continually throw our Catholic brethren under the bus. Uh, They haven't done us a lot of favors when it comes to the Eucharist, which is another uh, fancy word for communion. The Eucharist just basically just means Thanksgiving. It's supposed to be just a Thanksgiving meal, and that makes sense. But our Catholic brothers and sisters going way back decided that it's not just a meal that ordinary people celebrate to remember Jesus. Actually, physically, literally, the, the bread becomes the actual physical, literal body of Jesus. And so when the priest says his magic words over the bread, it transforms in the room in a real way into the body of Jesus. So you can't drop it. If you drop it, it's just like a gasp in the room. Uh, And you can't mistreat it. You know, you can't 
like, uh, you, you can't dispose of it in a trash because it's Jesus. You can't throw Jesus in the trash. So you got to take him outside and feed him to the birds. I don't know why that's better than the trash, but that's what you're supposed to do because it's really Jesus. And the, the juice or the wine is really his blood, and you drink it. So you can see why the world thinks that's weird, this idea of transubstantiation. My opinion, cards on the table. I'm going to get emails for this. My opinion, the formulation of the transubstantiation idea over time maybe was well-intentioned, but I think it was just more religiosity layered over the original meaning of the ritual, of the communion, the Eucharist. More religious nonsense. And I call it nonsense because what it does is it makes the priest indispensable. It's job security. Because the only person that can turn that bread into the body and that juice into the blood is Jesus, is, is the priest with his m magical words. And so if you can't have communion if you don't have a priest present. That's, that's a pretty good plan. If you're a priest, like that works out because they need me, you know, to commune with Jesus. It would be not unlike, you know, Say there was just hypothetically an air conditioning company that installed a super complicated air conditioning system in a very simple rectangular building. And, and they made it so that no one can operate it or know what's wrong with it or fix it or even use the freaking thermostat <laughs> without calling them and paying them to come and fix whatever's wrong with it every week. That would be, I, I don't, I've heard of stories like that. I'm not speaking in specifics. <laughs> That kind, of, that kind of thing enrages a person, and it should enrage us. And when we talk about the Christian religion or the Eucharist in those terms, it enrages people. And it should. That's not what it was meant to be. Now, through the years, non-Christians, secularists, were critical of the Christian Eucharist because to them it just sounded like a bunch of religious hocus-pocus. Which is interesting because that hocus-pocus word, the phrase, actually comes from medieval criticisms of the Eucharist. Let me explain. The, in Latin, the words, this is my body, actually are hocest enim corpus meum. Hocest enim corpus meum would be what the priest would say. And what would happen is that comedians or social critics would stand up in public squares. It was like the Daily Show of the time or like the SNL or, you know, Monty Python. And these critics, these comedians would stand up and they would mock the priests for saying that bread becomes the physical body of Jesus. And they would say, hocus enim corpus meum. And over time, that became hocus pocus. And you didn't know that, did you? So you learn something new every day. So that is what you get for coming to church today. That's where hocus pocus comes from. Now, people, um, people have mocked the Eucharist, mocked uh, this ritual forever. And yet, we at the story, a community devoted to inspiring non-religious people to follow Jesus, we celebrate this meal every week, after every service. We do this, which is weird. Because if you're trying to inspire non-religious people, why would you do the most religious thing imaginable in a Christian history. That's because for us, it is not a religious thing at all. In fact, the more we learn about what this meal really meant and what it means, the less religious it looks, the more irreligious it becomes. We don't believe Pastor Gio has, although her powers are formidable, I will say, magical powers. 
to turn bread into some guy's body, physical body, and we don't expect you to eat some guy's physical, actual flesh. So for us, it's symbolic, more symbolic. It's powerful, powerful symbol, a means of grace. But it's bread. It's bread, y'all. Don't worry. It's bread. Which is why after this service and after the 5 o'clock service, the kids will rush the stage and in the most irreverent way imaginable, fight each other and devour what's left of this sweet Hawaiian bread. Mysteriously, they leave the gluten-free stuff alone, and they just come for this. And they devour it, and there's crumbs everywhere, and it's filthy and sloppy. When I say the kids, by the way, I don't mean all the kids of the church. I just mean our two kids, like the ones, the preacher's kids. Because both their parents are preachers, they are entirely neglected. Y'all could call CPS on us any Sunday, and you'd have a case neglected and starving. Our kids rush the stage uh, after the 11 o'clock service. Luckily, we have that 5 o'clock service, so they get dinner too on Sundays now. So it works. It works out. Now, we feature this meal not because it's some hocus-pocus religious game. We, we feature this meal because we believe Jesus is the most important person here any given Sunday. Jesus is the most important person here. Not me. Not Pastor Gio. Not Adrian. Not Haley singing. Nobody else here is nearly as important as Jesus is. Therefore, it's our belief that every time we gather together, our worship services should not peak, should not culminate with the sermon or with, with, with the, the, the songs, the, the band, but, but, but with Jesus. Because I'm human, Pastor Geo's human, Adrian, Haley, everybody else here, totally human. We're going to have on weeks and off weeks, man, and we don't matter in light of Jesus. And so every single service should culminate or peak at the table with Jesus, with you and Jesus, with you surrounded by this community and Jesus freely receiving the gift he has for you, with you at his table receiving the same portion that everyone else receives, no matter how many zeros are on your commitment card, no matter how committed you are as a believer, everybody gets the same portion because he loves all of us the same. We believe that's what it means to have worship together. And so that's why we do this every time. And I think when you, when you take the time to learn that, you learn the history of the Eucharist, you start to get a feeling, a sense of how sacred it truly is. Most of us, I think, on any given Sunday when we come forward and awkwardly take the, the bread and dip it in the juice, I think we don't really have a sense of the history we're stepping into. Because I, I know deep down, if you thought about it, you might realize it, but maybe you don't really live into it in the moment. But the, what we do here is a reenactment of part of the Seder meal. The Seder meal is a historical Jewish feast that Jewish people celebrate every year. And it's highly scripted, highly choreographed, all the motions, all the words, all the food, exactly the same year after year. And it's been that way for 3,000 years. For 3,000 years, Hebrew people gather every year to share this meal, to remember the way God set them free from their slavery in Egypt. And they never deviate from that script because that's their story, that's their tradition. Now, most people know that our Eucharist is based on the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples. Not everybody knows that the Last Supper that Jesus shared was based on the Seder of the Hebrew people. So the meal Jesus is serving to his disciples is absolutely the same meal in every way that they had eaten with their family and congregation 
back home every year. And they were presumably following the script to a T, to a letter. And if you're not a Jewish person, you don't have history with the Hebrew religion, you won't know that. Even when you read the Gospels, you won't know that this is going on. But if you know what the Seder is, you can read into that. Jesus is serving his disciples the Seder meal. And so he has, he has basically led them through half of the meal. They've eaten the meal and they've drunk two cups of wine. But at the Seder meal, there's four cups of wine. Do I have your attention now? Some of you? All right, some of you are like, oh, I'm Seder. I, hmm, I'll have to check that out. You know, like, all right, four cups of wine. The two cups of wine, the first two you eat or you drink during the meal. So you drink those during the meal. But the gospel narrative we tell on Sundays usually picks up after that. The gospel will say something to the effect of after the meal was over, after they had eaten, he took the cup, right? That is to imply if you were a Jewish person who knew Seder well, you would know that that's the third cup. This cup is the third cup. The cup of redemption. The cup of redemption is the one Jesus picks up and he says this is, uh, he says, take and drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. So to this point, he's been scripted. Everybody's on board. Tradition, they're probably yawning, they're probably bored. It's exactly the same as every single year. So he says, take from it, drink from it, all of you. And then he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This would raise eyebrows. This is the first time Jesus breaks with the script. This is where Jesus begins to tell a different story that branches off from the original. So with the third cup, he doesn't say what he's scripted to say, what he's choreographed to say. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This would have confounded and confused the disciples who had celebrated uh, uh, Seder in every single way every year. But Jesus ain't done yet. He breaks the script even more. He leaves the fourth cup of wine on the table. And he says, guys, we're done. Follow me. And the guys are like, but the fourth cup, the fourth cup of wine is still here. You don't leave wine on the table. Like, that's not, it's a good, you're breaking the code. You know what I mean? And Jesus is like, no, follow me. And they follow him out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And while he's at the Garden of Gethsemane, it's there that Jesus waits for the accusers to come and arrest him. He waits for them to come and take him away. He knows what's coming. And it's there that he kneels and famously prays, Father, if, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Now, we gloss over that because we've heard it a million times probably, but you got to understand that line does not make sense outside the context of the Seder meal. What cup is he talking about? The fourth cup. And he's saying the new script, the new script that deviates from the old script, the new script, the new covenant, the fourth, fourth cup isn't just a cup of wine. The fourth cup is the cross of Jesus cross of Jesus is the fourth cup. The fourth cup is known as the cup of completion. If the cross of Jesus is the cup of completion, now what does the cross of Jesus complete? If you've been paying attention to our study of Hebrews, you know very well what the cross of Jesus completes. The cross of Jesus completes this endless cycle of religion. This endless cycle of perpetuated shame and guilt. Paying your way for your own sins, seeking your own right standing with God by way of religion, by way of priests, and by way of sacrifice. That is what the cross of Jesus completes. Now, 
I want to dig into Hebrews here with you for the rest of our time together. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to be if you want to open your Bibles or, or use these study guides if, if, if you'd like to. If you're new here and maybe didn't bring a Bible, that's totally fine. This study guide can help you. Um, I'm going to start in Hebrews 10 verse 18. This is not in the main reading. I just wanted you all to see that the writer of Hebrews says this. It's not me saying this. He says this. Sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So sacrifices were the method, the means of religion. Religious righteousness is no longer necessary because of Jesus. So the fourth cup, the cross, was the completion of the religious cycle. And then he says this. uh, This is our reading today. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22. Here we go. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. It's a lot to chew on there. A lot of things you probably don't really understand, and that's fine uh, if it's your first reading of it. But I love that this author gives us a new metaphor. I love metaphors. gives us a new metaphor, a new symbol to chew on here. Jesus as a curtain. The body of Jesus as a curtain. That's strange. You probably never thought of that. But you got to kind of work with this from the Hebrew um, understanding, from the Jewish lens. So what curtain is he talking about? In the temple, which was the central religious symbol for the religion of Jesus, the Jewish religion, in the temple there was a curtain, a giant curtain, a veil that separated the Temple courts where everybody, all the common folk hung out from the most holy place. The most holy place was the inner room. Imagine if there was a room behind this mural where God lived. Physically, literally, God lived. That's what the Jewish people believed about the most holy place. There was a curtain, a huge veil that existed that symbolized the separation from God, between God and the people. And guess who were the only people that got to go behind the curtain? The priests. Here we are again. One priest at a time, once a year, could go behind the curtain and talk to God for all the people. And then he came out from behind the curtain and he told everybody what God told him to say to all the people. And this was the religious system of the time. But in Matthew chapter 27, it says that at the moment Jesus died and breathed his last breath and said, it is finished. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What this means is that the old way of priestly religion where in one guy could go and talk to God for all the people and vice versa, and all the people were left wondering if God really loved them or cared for them or still was there or was alive or dead. All the people didn't have access to God. Only one person did. Now that temple is torn, the, the, the curtain is torn in two in the temple. The veil that separated God from the people, it is gone. The veil that separated you from God is gone. Whatever veil you had between you and God in the death of Jesus, it was torn in two. Now, you might still be living as though it exists. You might still be hoping for religion to save you or for priests to speak up for you. Listen, that veil is gone. It is torn. It is obsolete. So that whereas before in the age of religion, only one man could talk to God one time per year, now anyone can draw near to God. Anyone, anytime. 
can reach out and draw near to God. This is profound, profound stuff here. He's saying that the age of religion is over. And some new age has begun. This is in the New Testament. (laughs) It's in the Bible. The age of religion is done. Something new has happened. Anyone can draw near to God. The question then obviously is how. I get get these sorts of questions all the time. How do I draw near to God? Well, this author gives us two starting points. He says you draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Let's start with a sincere heart. That's the easier of the two. What does it mean to draw near to God with a sincere heart? I figured the easiest way to do this was to just examine that word sincere. What does sincere mean? What does it mean to be sincere? It means to be authentic. It means to be genuine, right? I looked up the actual definition of uh, sincere this week. I think we have it for everybody. Do we? There we go. All right. So sincere is to be free from pretense, unpretentious, free from deceit, proceeding from genuine feelings. Now, what I want to ask you is what it means then for you, for you individually to draw near to God with a sincere heart. I can tell you what it means for me because I, I know my heart, right? My, my heart draws near to God in the early morning hours. I know some of y'all aren't going to like this. Early morning hours before the sun's up. It's still dark out and my coffee is even darker. And I've got my coffee in one hand and my dog Limp Biscuit in the other. And we're just hanging out on the porch talking to God. That's how my heart sincerely draws near to God. But listen, just because I'm your pastor, or even if I wasn't, you, you don't need to copy my way. There's no right way for you to sincerely draw near to God, right? To be sincere is to do what your heart is made to do, to draw near to God. And so don't copy me. Don't copy Pastor Gio. Don't copy anyone else's way. Be who God made you to be and draw near to him in that way. So for some people, that's going to be on their front porch in the early morning hours. For other people, that's going to be late at night sitting under the stars. For other people, that's going to be serving your neighbor. For others, that's going to be singing songs to God. For others, that's going to be doing amazing art like that behind me. It's going to, it's going to vary depending on how God made your heart. Who are you? How did he create you to draw near to him? See, what you have to understand is that God made you the way that you are, and he loves you the way that you are. So you can draw near to him the way that you are. And that's what he wants. And all the time I hear people say, look, pastor, I don't mind coming to church. My wife is happy when I come to church with her, but I don't really get anything out of it. And, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, it's, I, I totally understand. I wouldn't want to sit here and listen to me. I get it. I totally do get it, really. That's fine. I hear guys all the time say, I find God, I draw near to God, you know, with a fishing rod in my hand, out on the water or in a deer blind or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, that's great. That's between you and God, you know. And you got to make sure you pick God over the six packs. But that's great. Like, you can go for it. God made you with that heart. So draw near to him with that heart, not with somebody else's heart. That's what it means to draw near to God with a sincere heart. Secondly, what does it mean to draw near to God with the full assurance that faith brings? This was a little trickier. Because it's very easy to jump over that line between being assured, like a self-assured person, 
and just being a jerk. Because it's very easy to be smug. If you're very assured, assured of, of what God has done for you, it's very easy to be one of those Christians who just looks down on everyone else. There's a very thin line between being assured and being a jerk. Where is that line between assurance and just being entitled? I think the line is in humility. And I thought I would take us through a couple of examples between uh, the difference between an assurance and a sense of entitlement. First, uh, the assured person says, God loves me unconditionally. But the entitled person says, deep down they say, God loves me because I'm, I'm pretty awesome. You know, I'm, I, I think I deserve the love of God because I'm a good person. This is, um, these entitlement answers are going to be a lot like what Pastor Gio talked about with, um, with the uh, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism from last Sunday. This kind of self-assurance that goes a little bit too far. Second, assurance says, I don't deserve the lavish grace of God. Entitlement, though, says, I I totally deserve it, <laughs> again, because I'm, I'm awesome, I'm great. Assurance says, when things don't go my way, when I pray for something and don't get what I prayed for, I lean more on God, not less. I trust God more, not less. But the entitled person says, when I pray for something and don't get it, when things don't go my way, I begin to doubt God, because I was entitled to what I prayed for, because I'm a good person. And so if I don't get it, then I'm going to doubt God. I'm going to maybe distance myself and resent God. And finally, the assured person says, I need God. The entitled person will say, God needs me. I'll boil it down this way as we close. Assurance, drawing near to God with the kind of assurance that faith brings, is knowing these two things. And they seem to contradict, but it's a paradox. It's knowing. There is no way you deserve the grace of God. No way. And there is no way that God will ever stop giving it to you. There is no way you deserve his love, and there is no way he will ever stop loving you. When you know those two things, you really understand what it means to live in that assurance. And when you know those two things, you will be immediately, automatically compelled to seek different decisions, different choices in your life, more holiness, life change will inevitably happen. Not because if you don't, you'll go to hell. If you don't, he'll punish you. He wants to take his wrath out on you, get your life together. No, because you know there's no way you deserve his love and there's no way he'll stop loving you. The only response to that is life change. And it begins now. The moment you realize he loves you and he's given you this life and he's made your heart the way that he has and he wants you to draw near to him with that heart that he's given you and not anyone else's way, not anyone else's method. Man, when you internalize that, life change immediately happens. Like it says in 10.22 from Hebrews, it says we have our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us. We, God sprinkles our hearts to cleanse us from within a guilty conscience and and then we have our bodies washed with pure water. And so there is this internal reality, this realization that, oh, my God, I am loved. Oh, my God, I'm here for a purpose. Oh, my God, I have friends and family. Oh, my God, I have God. And that it cleanses you from the inside, your conscience. But then your, your exterior life also begins to look different. Your life, your actions, they begin to change. And these are the differences between religion in gospel. Religion says if you've been misbehaving, if you've lost track of yourself, you should be ashamed. And out of your shame, you better get to temple or church and make an offering before it's too late. 
gospel says if you've lost your way, you can have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, to draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. What did Jesus come to save us from? I can't believe a preacher is about to say this in a Christian church in 2017 in America. What did Jesus come to save us from? Jesus came to save us from religion. And the shame that it piles on to the people of God the shame that it layers on, the shame that it imposes on us because God isn't about that cycle of shame. God isn't about the job security of holy men and holy women. God is about freedom. And just like the Hebrew people were freed by the blood of the lamb from their slavery in Egypt, we who follow Jesus are freed by the blood of the cross from our slavery to sin and shame in the cycles of religion. That is why Jesus came to set us free, to draw near to God with our sincere hearts. And the blessed assurance that comes from faith. In response to that reality for centuries, women and men and children have come forward to feel and experience the water of baptism. Which again is another ritual that has kind of been misunderstood. All it is is that holy water, the water of God that cleanses us from the inside out. This water isn't the water from the River Jordan, and it's not going to have the same effect that it had on Jesus. You're not going to have doves flying down from the sky. This water is a symbol of the water of God that washes you from the inside out, making us new and setting us free. Today during communion, I'm going to be standing right here. And I would love to see some of you take that public step forward because I know God has been pulling the strings of your heart and urging you towards something better, something more intentional than just drifting through this life, leading your family with more strength and power, leading your family with more grace and sacrifice. Let today be a, a new start. This fountain here is brand new. It's the first day we've had it. It's given in memory of, of a guy named Jason, Jason Thusfeld, who was actually uh, the, the subject of our first funeral here at the story. Back before we were even this, in this building, Jason uh, received Jesus and followed Jesus, and he was changed, but he still battled with this awful disease of depression. He took his own life. But even in his death, he knew he was assured of where his soul belonged to whom he belonged, and we miss him and his Australian accent in this community, but we know this life is just a fleeting breath, man. It's a blink of an eye, and we're going to have eternity with him because of what this water represents. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we love you. We're praying for courage for some who have been on the fence, afraid to be intentional, afraid to put themselves out there, I pray that we would be courageous enough to step forward and say, no, God, we are yours and you are ours. In Jesus' name, amen.